The peace of Christ be with you all. You can go ahead and find your seats. My name is Joe Gerber. I'm one of the elders here at All Saints, and it's a uh, privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. The scripture today comes from Galatians 2, 11 through 21. This is our sermon text. You can open in your Bibles, or it's also uh, for you there in your bulletins. This is what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that you give us. And we pray that your word would be opened before us, Father, and that we might see you in new and transforming ways, that we might love the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be accepted by God through his sacrificial death, this incredible news that you've handed to us, I pray that we would love it and cherish it more and more. Thank you for this opportunity to hear from you and from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in August of 2016, a story hit the media that shocked those who saw the story. In the Palawan province of the Philippines, I'm sure Shelton knows where that is, a fisherman, he told a tale that was almost too incredible to be believed, but it was true. So during a fishing expedition some 10 years earlier, so back in 2006, the fisherman, he was out fishing, he needed to pull up anchor, um, because there was a storm coming in, but he couldn't get the anchor up. And so the fisherman dived down to investigate what was going on. Um, he, he 
found the problem. He pulled the anchor from its problem. But then next to the anchor, he found a giant clam. Well, wishing to eat the clam, the fisherman brought it aboard, at which point he discovered inside the clam, you guessed it, a giant pearl. But here's the thing. For the next 10 years, not knowing what he had actually found and its true worth and value, the fisherman kept the pearl under his bed where he would occasionally touch it for good luck before he went out fishing. Eventually, the fisherman forgot that the pearl was under his bed until he was moving out of his home. He needed help. He remembered that the pearl was under his bed. He gave it to a relative for safekeeping, and it was then discovered that this pearl, which was 2.2 feet long, and one foot wide and weighed a whopping 75 pounds, was the largest known pearl in the world. Its estimated value right now is at around $100 million. It's currently on display in the provincial capital in a city named Puerto Princesa. Well, I, I really liked this image to open the sermon today of something that's worth $100 million, and it's just sitting under a fisherman's bed. It's, it's a fisherman's good luck charm that he touches and rubs once in a while. But eventually, this thing is recognized for what it was, something of immense value, of immense worth, and the man's life changed. Well, today we're coming to one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, certainly in the book of Galatians. It's a passage where the gospel in all its shining glory is kind of put on full display for us. The Apostle Paul's been writing about the value of the gospel and how it transforms, how it changes not only the individual but everything in the individual's life. I'd like you to think of a similar picture to that of the fisherman. For many of us, we've picked up the gospel at some point in our lives, uh, but some of us have put it under the metaphorical bed and we've basically forgotten about it. We might use the gospel as some form of good luck charm, provides fire insurance, right? This thing that might keep me from going to hell. Or maybe it's something that we think of that brings comfort in our lives during life's many trials and sufferings. But we really don't contemplate or maybe even understand the immense value of the gospel. If we did, our lives would be radically transformed. And instead, for, for many of us, the truth of the gospel, and again, the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be accepted, to be reconciled to God through his sacrificial death. But for many of us, this truth is sitting there under, the, under our beds. We haven't seen its value. It hasn't become real to us. So let's look at our passage here from Galatians chapter 2 a little more closely. It's my hope that we leave here this morning seeing the good news shine before us in, in sort of new and, and convicting ways. Well, our passage begins with this confrontation between two giants, absolute giants of the Christian faith, the great apostles Peter and Paul. I mean, here you have Peter, St. Peter, the largest church in the world today is named after this man. And then great theologian, the apostle Paul. Well, here we have Peter in weakness and fear. He's acting one way when he's eating with the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. 
But when certain Jews would show up, then Peter would separate himself from the Gentiles in order to not offend his fellow Jews who believed that one would somehow be unclean for eating with these uncircumcised Gentiles. You see, the early church struggled mightily with the question of what does the gospel require of the various ethnic groups that are now coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And how do we overcome the distrust and suspicion that the Jews in particular had about unclean Gentiles? And then how to help Gentiles see themselves as full members of what you might call the covenant of grace, of the church. And in verse 11 It says that Paul opposed Cephas, that is Peter, to his face because he stood condemned. In fact, we know that Peter stood self-condemned. And the reason I say that is years before, Peter knew that the gospel had come to the Gentiles. In fact, Peter was the first person that this had been revealed to in the whole world. Peter was the one who God revealed that the gospel would come to the Gentiles. You might remember the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10, Uh, when it's it's the conversion of a Gentile named Cornelius. God put Peter into a trance in this story, and then Peter saw a vision of a sheet being lowered from heaven that had animals in it, which Jews were forbidden to eat. And Peter heard the voice of Jesus say to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter at first refused, right, stating that animals were unclean. I can't eat them. And the voice from heaven responded, What God has made clean, do not call common. And at first Peter was confused about this vision. But that day Peter was taken to the Gentile's house named Cornelius. Cornelius was ultimately converted, after which Peter proclaimed in Acts 10, 34-35, this is what he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter knew. This was years before this meeting that's being recounted in Antioch between Peter and Paul. Peter knew the truth about Gentiles being welcomed into the family of faith. But back here in Galatians 2, we see Peter still acting as if it's not true. Peter is here committing the sin of tribalism. The sin of showing partiality. You might even call it the sin of racism. Peter's commitment to his tribe, that is his ethnic identity, is taking precedence over his commitment to the gospel. And in that sense, Peter is hiding the gospel under his bed, isn't he? It's not transforming this area yet of Peter's life. Peter has forgotten who he is. Peter has forgotten who he is. He's acting like his Jewish ethnicity is more important than his new identity in Christ. And so Paul rightly opposes Peter in front of the brethren. And Peter was not acting consistent with the truth of the gospel. Well, we see that today too. One of the sad byproducts of American Christianity are these forms of identity politics that we see swarming around. One of those is known as, and I think most of you have heard this phrase, racial identity politics. The racial slaveholding of the past led to this tragic division in the church where black folks were forced to form their own churches and denominations. White folks had their own churches and denominations. And we can get a sense of the travesty 
of that reality here in Paul's confrontation of Peter. Peter is here segregating himself in a literal sense, segregating himself from Gentile believers, and therefore Paul confronts him to his face because this is ultimately a denial of the gospel. The true gospel is a Catholic gospel. And what I mean by that is the true gospel is for everyone from every tribe and tongue and nation on the planet. The true gospel does not create artificial walls around Christian communion. Divisions of of race and ethnicity, sex, politics, national identity, these divisions have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Anything that divides believers from one another on the basis of skin color, therefore, is anti-gospel. It's segregating that which Jesus came to bring together. Well, Peter, like so many of us today, was dealing with what we might call an identity crisis. Peter was Jewish, and that was certainly not only a part, but a deep part of who Peter was. Well, today there's a crisis of identity that's playing out every day on our, on our screens, on our social media feeds, in our neighborhoods and homes, even in our own hearts. In a, what I would consider an infamous Supreme Court majority opinion, uh, I think it was back in 1993, it was a decision uh, for the Casey versus Planned Parenthood case. Justice Anthony Kennedy, he wrote the majority opinion in that case, which reaffirmed um, the rights to abortion. But many have called some of the words that he said the creed of our day. This is truly what we tend to believe as modern man. These are the words that he wrote. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. This is a wholesale rejection of the notion that there exists a a divine order, that God defines what's right, an order to which we must conform, not vice versa. So the creed of our day is that the self defines reality, defines meaning, defines what existence is all about. We've moved from this more biblical understanding that we should conform our souls to reality, to the more modern notion that I get to define reality. And this, of course, has gotten us into all kinds of moral confusion. The sociologist Robert Bella, he referred to this modern notion of the self with the phrase expressivist individualism. Expressivist individualism, that the individual is required to express their deepest longings and desires and expect others to then affirm that. Pastor Tim Keller, he prefers the phrase, the sovereign self. That is, I have a self-identity and the highest authority is myself. There is no authority above that. These are modern notions of how we identify ourselves. So when we've abandoned the notion that, the, that God defines who we are, who I am, then we are left with the notion that I then get to define my own self-concept. 
Tim Keller writes that this modern notion of the sovereign self is best captured in the song Let It Go from the Disney movie Frozen. And I share this illustration at the risk of breaking every young girl's heart in here, and that's certainly not what I intend to do. But the song is sung by a character determined to no longer, quote, be the good girl that her family and society had wanted her to be. Instead, she would let go and express what she had been holding back inside. There is no, quote, right or wrong, no rules for her. See, that's, her identity is not determined by submitting her own desires to the good of her family to the, or, or, or to the society. Instead, she and us, because this is a song about us, really, we become our true selves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams, regardless of what anyone says. I am my own authority. Well, this pressure to express my individualism, my deepest desires, my authentic self, is an affront to the gospel that is articulated here in Galatians chapter 2. Just as Peter chose his ethnic identity over his identity in Christ at this moment anyway, we moderns are often confronted with choosing our own expressivist individual identities over our identities in Christ as Christians. Some of you may have been following the PCA General Assembly that took place last month in St. Louis. The PCA, by the way, if you're new or visiting, um, that's the Presbyterian Church in America. That's the denomination that we here at All Saints belong to. Uh, and the General Assembly is a gathering of, all, of, of ruling and teaching elders from the church around America um, to make decisions regarding the church. Well, there were two overtures that caught uh, much kind of media attention, at least in um, nerd, nerd Christian world. Um, those overtures had, had, had to do with a controversy that had been rumbling in the church over the last few years. The question that these overtures were dealing with was the question of how ordained ministers ought to identify. There were some who were arguing that a man could identify as a, as a gay man or as a same-sex attracted man as long as he did not you know, participate in, in that sinful behavior. So as long as he affirmed that that was sinful behavior and did not um, uh, participate in that, um, so, some believed that, well, this was still a part of one's identity and that could still be expressed on some level. Well, Overture 23, which passed with over 77% of the vote last month at General Assembly, this is what it states. Men who self-identify as a gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like term, shall be deemed not qualified for ordination in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, it's not my purpose here to um, t- take a stance one way or the other on um, the nuance of these particular overtures. But I do just want to point out this whole controversy has to do with identity. It has to do with self-conception, how we ought to identify ourselves who am I? Who am I is the question that this is dealing with. And Paul's going to give us a clear answer to that question here. Ultimately, we cannot know who we are until we know whose we are. 
Paul's going to make that clear. We cannot know who we are until we know whose we are. And so for the rest of Galatians 2, Paul will describe the reality of what the gospel does to our crises of identity. So here in verse 16, Paul, he's still referring to his bout with his fellow Jew, Peter. He says that he and Peter both know the gospel truth, that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Here is one of those words that we use a lot in the Christian church, this word justified, justification. What does this word mean? Now this is a a word that you could do a whole year-long series on this word alone. And this is one of the passages where justification is certainly um, described and taught. I prefer N.T. Wright's translation when he translated um, um, a Greek New, a New Testament from the Greek. Instead of using the word justification, he'd use the phrase declared righteous. I think that that's right. It's literally the opposite of being condemned. A person who's been justified has been declared before God as righteous. It's being found not guilty. And Paul adds here in verse 16 that not a single person will be justified, declared righteous by the works of the law. Well, Paul then deals in verses 17 through 19 of our text with the common objection that he had to deal with in his letter to the Romans and elsewhere. That is, if one is justified, that is, they are declared righteous, and yet they still sin, well, then isn't Jesus a promoter of sin? Jesus said, I declare you righteous, yet I look at you and you still sin. Then Jesus is promoting sin, isn't he? Paul concludes this accusation in verse 18 and 19. He declares that those who try to prove their justification by rebuilding what has already been torn down. And what he's talking about there is you're rebuilding this notion of like, I'm going to be justified by obedience to the law again. I'm going to go back and rebuild that system. This will never make anybody righteous, he says. We will just prove. I mean, if you want to try that, go for it. All you're going to do, according to Paul, is prove once again that you are transgressors. Trying to prove your righteousness before God through obedience to the law is just going to prove once again that you need Jesus. You need a Savior. One of the purposes of the law, and Paul makes this clear here, handed down through Moses is to reveal to us that we are sinners. That's why the law was given. You can look up Romans 7, 7, uh, where Paul makes that even more explicit. But then in verse 19, those who are in Christ have died to the law with all of its impossible demands and attending consequence, death. It says this, we died to the law so that we might live to God. In Christ, we no longer have the immense burden of, of trying to earn God's favor or approval through our own efforts and willpower. Instead, we, ha- we have gained his approval through the gift of grace because we have been declared righteous. We've been justified. And this new freedom from the law opens the way then for the believer to live a life devoted to Christ without guilt and without condemnation. And now we get to one of the great and most memorable passages in all of Holy Scripture. This is a passage that I hid in my heart when I was a child, and many of you have memorized this passage as well. Verses 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There is so much in this passage that can be unpacked, but I just want to hone in on this theme that we've already been discussing in this sermon. That is the theme of identity. Again, we will never truly know who we are until we know whose we are. A famous story, it's a well-known story, is told of Margaret Thatcher uh, during the time that she was the prime minister in the United Kingdom. She was visiting a nursing home. She was going from room to room, uh, meeting with senior citizens there in the home who had lived there for a long time. Well, one old lady showed no signs of realizing this world-famous politician that she was shaking hands with. So Margaret Thatcher says, do you know who I am? To which the old lady replied, no, dear, but I should ask the nurse if I were you. She usually knows. (laughs) It's a strange idea to most of us to have to relearn who you are. It's exactly what people who have suffered severe memory loss must do. And it's exactly this idea, the, the, the losing of one's own identity and replacing it with a whole new identity that Paul is explaining in this complex passage. Remember, modern man has been sold a bill of goods. This notion that we must express our deepest desires and, and we define our own existence, we define our own identities. This has led to mass confusion and conflict. Why is it that with all of our scientific advancements, our seeming advancements in mental health, medicine, modern people are so confused about who we are? There seems to be a morass of confusion about this question of identity. Walker Percy, he was a well-known, writing most of his books kind of in the mid-20th century. Uh, He was a Southern Gothic author. He perceived this phenomenon uh, in one of his few nonfiction books, it was entitled Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book. Um, it's a satire. A lot of people who read this book don't actually understand it as a satire, but that is what it is. This book also has what, as far as I can tell, the longest subtitle I've ever seen in my life. It's like a page and a half long, the subtitle to the book. One of the su- Part of the subtitle is this. So it's Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, and then a part of the subtitle is this. How you can survive in the cosmos about which you know more and more, right, through these scientific advancements, while knowing less and less about yourself. This despite 10,000 self-help books, 100,000 psychotherapists, and 100 million fundamentalist Christians, end quote. Modern man is adrift in a cosmos where God has been removed from the equation And there is no ultimate meaning, therefore, and we must create meaning for ourselves. Well, the Christian response to this confusion is right here in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I, and this is Paul speaking, but if you're a believer here, put your own I in this. I, that is, and this is what he's referring to, my old self with all of its conflicting desires and inhibitions, have been crucified with Christ. So I, the old self, have been crucified with Christ. 
He continues, I, again, that is my old self, no longer live as my old self, but Christ lives in me. Okay, so, so I still am. I still exist. There's still a me here. But this me is a reference to the new self. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5.17 in another pretty well-known passage. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold the new has come. So this passage in Galatians 2 is not merely about some trifling, and, his, and by the way, his debate with Peter, it's not merely about some trifling difference of opinion. It's not an argument over some fine point of doctrine. No, this passage is about nothing less than who you and I are in Christ. It's as basic as that. Paul's confrontation with Peter was ultimately about Christian identity. Peter wanted to continue to hold on to his old identity, an identity in this case that was defined by the law. But Paul reminded him that his identity had actually been remade. He was a new creation. It's an identity defined by Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Well, perhaps you've read the Narnia series um, by C.S. Lewis, um, there's a character in the book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, that C.S. Lewis introduces us to. That character's name is Eustace Scrub. Um, in fact, the book opens with this, for me, it's a hilarious line. There was a boy called Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Even his name conveys the character. Eustace is a character you just kind of want to punch in the face, at least early on in the story, until his transformation experience with Aslan. He was arrogant. He was self-centered. Um, he was uh, an annoyance to everybody, including the Edmund and Lucy Pevensey, the two siblings that were in this story. He's, a, as the British might say, he's a self-aggrandizing prig. He's also an unbeliever, right? He doesn't even believe in the magic of Narnia. He's read enough science and economics to know that's all hogwash. Well, he's in Narnia. He's on a ship, and they land on an island. And I'm going to tell you a bit of the story here. They land on an island. Eustace finds a dragon's lair, and he's very greedy for the treasure that he finds there. He, he puts on a gold bracelet, in fact, and then he falls asleep. When he wakes up, he had, finds that he has been turned into a dragon. Lewis writes this, Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Well, Eustace had fleeting thoughts of relief at being, you know, the biggest thing around. Now I'm powerful and everybody will respect me. But he quickly realizes he, he's now been cut off from the only people who possibly put up with him and loved him, all of humanity. He feels this deep weight of loneliness and he desperately wants to change. Well, that night, Aslan comes to Eustace and he leads him to a large wet well. It's described like this, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. Um, you, a lot of you will immediately recognize that this is going to be a picture of baptism. Eustace describes the scene to Edmund after the fact. He says the water was so clear and he thought if he could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in his leg, the pain that he was feeling because of this bracelet that's now very small on his, on his arm. But Aslan told him he had to undress first. 
And doesn't God ask this of us? We must lay before him, before God, what is actually in us, not the things that ought to be in us, but what is truly in us. This is what we did a little bit of ago. This is confession of sin. We open up before God. That's the process that Eustace is going through here. Well, Eustace found that no matter how many layers of dragon skins he managed to peel off of himself, he was still a dragon. That is, Eustace was not able to change himself. Well, then the lion Aslan said, and this is Eustace, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into the heart. It did. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like a bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain I had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy. This scene always grabs my heart. It reminds me that I cannot fix myself. Lewis is putting in the form of a story the transformation that we all must go through from death into life. I have been crucified with Christ. This is baptismal language. Baptism signifies this reality as we go under the waters and our old self dies on the cross with Christ. And then then we are raised into new life. And we have a new identity. We have a new name, Christian. We've been radically remade in the likeness of Christ, our King. Eustace Scrub, just like us, had to be remade. He was given a new identity. He was changed, and his desires changed as well. This is how uh, the, the narrator of the story describes this change that had come over Eustace. This is a picture of our own sanctification, our walk The narrator says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There there, there were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Isn't that the way it is for all of us? We begin to be different as the grace of God changes us for the better, the cure has begun in our lives. I apologize for the multiple C.S. Lewis quotes, and I promise this is the last one, but it's worth its weight in gold. This is what he says in his book, Mere Christianity, about this transformation, this cure, as he calls it. 
He says, put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to, be, are to read what Christ said and then try to carry it out, as a man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. He continues, it's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world. Really coming and interfering with your very self. Killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self that he has. At first, only for moments. And then for longer periods. And finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing. Into a new little Christ. A being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in, its, in His power, in His joy, knowledge, and eternity. End quote. We are being remade. We are being transformed, those of us who are in Christ. We are not our old selves. And then verse 20 continues. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what now motivates us, what now animates us, is faith in the Son of God. Faith is our drive and our passion and our enthusiasm. It's not just faith in the modern sense, in some abstract principle or truth or theological dogma. Faith in an abstract, impersonal truth never saved a single soul. No, it's much more personal than that. It's, it's faith in the one, it's trust and belief, it's submission to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how intensely personal this is? He loves me. He gave himself for me. Charles Spurgeon, when he was commenting on this passage about Christ's personal love, he said, if a man could know that he was loved by all his fellow men, if he could have it for certain that he was loved by all the angels, yet these were but so many drops and all put together, could not compare with the main ocean contained in the fact that God loves us. So please hear this, Christian brother and sister. We are not our own. We were bought with the price, the death of our dear and loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives today. He loves you and He gave Himself for you. You are not your own if you are in Christ. You are a new creation. Only when we see ourselves as completely loved by Christ will, the, will we then be able to boldly confess and repent with joy to conquer our fears, to obey Christ, the one who accomplished all of this for us. And then in verse 21, if this gift could be gained through obedience to the law, then Christ died for nothing. That is, Christ either did it all for you as he did for Eustace, 
or he didn't do any of it for you. That's what Paul's saying. We can't combine our works with Christ's sacrifice. The beauty of the gospel message is all in these two verses. Christ's sacrifice was perfect. And it has created a new and transformed people. Our old selves have died. We've been remade and we're being made more and more like Christ who loved me. He loved you and gave himself for me. He gave himself for you. This is good news. It's the best news that the world has ever known. So brother and sister, don't hide this good news under your bed or think of it as a good luck charm. Rather, bring this invaluable gift out from under your bed. Let this good news transform you. Let it remake you. And then let this good news transform those areas where God has you. Your families and your friendships, your careers, our church here at All Saints, our neighborhoods and our city. The gospel of our Savior Jesus is transforming all of this and we are participating in this grand story. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. This is the Christian life summed up in one verse. And if this is true of you, there is no truer thing in the world about you. This is the sum of your identity. And it's the place where your greatest hope is found. Amen.